Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I am Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Bill, today we want to, first off, I think we should note that it is creepy that I feel like our podcast on libertarianism was unassumingly or unwittingly prophetic. I mean, I, I felt like we threw out a theory about Gary Johnson and he confirmed it. <laughs> he really did. Yeah. Which, how does that make you feel? It's very interesting. Well, I think, uh, first of all, we should have our own show on MSNBC. I Absolutely. Think, I think that would be one thing. Or, you know, uh, maybe the new Trump network. I, that, I bet it would pay better. <laughs> I'm sure most things would pay better. Uh, why don't you reference what we're talking about? Well, uh, we did a show on the nature of freedom recently, and we were talking about, well, actually, we did a show where we, where we talked about libertarianism and right. Gary Johnson, how we lost how Gary Johnson kind of, the libertarian moment kind of came and went. And then we talked a little bit about just the nature of freedom in general, as libertarians are people that are, want con- maximum freedom from constraint. But we talked about maybe Gary Johnson's lack, seeming lack of international knowledge of leaders and events might stem from the fact that basically a libertarian president probably wouldn't think that he or she was incredibly responsible for international affairs. And Gary Johnson said, like, the next day or something that... You know, when it comes to uh, talking about a foreign leader that you respect, that you admire, um, I have a hard time with that one. Um, that's, that's politics. Um, that's just who I am. So now I'm going to have to pick out a world leader, and, uh, and there's going to be something that's wrong with them, and now I'm going to have to defend them? Well, maybe I think too much. Well, by the same token, you're running to be commander in chief, foreign policy, and unexpected yeah, and events here's, are a big and here's, part of the portfolio. Yeah, and, and you know what? And the fact that somebody can dot the I's and cross the T's on a foreign leader or a geographic location uh, then allows them to put our military in harm's way. You're talking about PTSD earlier. Basically, his ignorance of foreign leaders' names and being able to dot every I and cross every T and dry, write down everybody's names on a cocktail napkin is an asset because the people that know that thing, know those things, want to flex their muscles internationally. One other example of the current climate where knowledge and competency seems to, it's, they seem to have become liabilities. Yeah. You, you start, in the debate, the best thing was, do you know how bad my SAT scores were? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even get me the, they didn't even give me the points for putting my names in. Oh my goodness, stupid is. It's stupid. There you go. So we, we were inspired to continue to talk a little bit about freedom by, of all things, Westworld. Yeah. It's a new series on uh, HBO. Uh, you know, it's a remake. Yes, it is. Well, I, can, I think I've, I never saw the, well, I saw the movie on rerun, but it was uh, Michael Creighton. Is that how you pronounce it? Creighton. Yeah. Uh, one of his early books and early movies. And it was about a futuristic amusement park. Uh, where you could go and act out the old West fantasies, but in the original, the robots start behaving badly, particularly Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner, who <laughs> was Arnold Schwarzenegger's inspiration for the Terminator. Like when he saw, he thought that the Terminator should act just like Yul Brenner. Yes, yes. And um, again, I vaguely remember the plot of the original, but um, it's it's really the same plot. But I mean, it's interesting though because why now? Why a remake? Probably because. Certain technological possibilities are much more in the forefront. Can I play you a clip, actually, from the original? When yes, please do. When they're actually they're they are attempting to figure out why the you know why the robots are going crazy, and here's the couple seconds of it. <laughs> 
which can tell you the difference in understanding of technology and such things. The day we opened the resort, we had a failure and breakdown rate conforming to computer predictions. That is 0.3 malfunctions for each 24-hour activation period, concurrent or not. Now, this was an anticipated operations aspect of the resort, and we were fully able to handle it. The majority of the breakdowns were minor or peripheral until about six weeks ago. Then Roman World had a rise in breakdown rate which doubled in a week. In addition, we saw a disproportionate rise in central as opposed to peripheral breakdowns. Now we identified some problems with humidity control and regained homeostasis. Well, despite our corrections, the breakdown rate continued to climb. Then medieval world began to have trouble. Now we're seeing more Western world breakdowns. And there's a clear pattern here which suggests an analogy to an infectious disease process spreading from one resort area to the next. Perhaps there are superficial similarities to disease. It's only a theoretical concept. There are many ways to order that data. I must confess, I find it difficult to believe in a disease of machinery. We're <laughs> dealing with ordinary machines here. These are highly complicated pieces of equipment, almost as complicated as living organisms. In some cases, they've been designed by other computers. We don't know exactly how they work. <laughs> so they anticipated computer bugs. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is why a lot of things like. Battlestar Galactica, the remake, was wildly successful. Whereas, I mean, you know, the original had a cult following, but the 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 remake a few years ago, I mean, it had a massive following. And and things like The Matrix, I think this is why The Terminator has had continued relevance because more and more AI is not a science fiction thing; it's yeah. a reality, and it's getting better and better and better and better. I mean, it's you know beating AI chess you know, programs can beat the best chess player. So yeah. I think it more and more, you know, it, it seems so far out. And when you watch the, uh, when you watch the seventies version, it's so like, it's kind of camp. And but, but one of the guys, it's like these two guys, uh, James Brolin, I forget the other actor, but he's kind of a B sort of actor. Brolin looks like so macho, and, you know, he just <laughs> looks like such a stud. And it's like, and he's bringing his buddy to a Westworld for the first time. And it's so, Great. And then when the computers start going crazy, Brolin's like, I'm shot. <laughs> and Yul Brenner just goes up and shoots him. And he's like, I'm shot. And Yul Brenner shoots him again. <laughs> it's so awesome. Yeah. It also seems like uh, the writers decide, okay, how do we convey technology? Let's speak in monotones and just string words together. <laughs> that was, so, oh, that must be science because I didn't understand well, it. I was that, bored. Yeah. that is interesting though because you, like Schwarzenegger, I heard him interviewed after the last Terminator came out and he was saying, it's funny because he was going for the part of uh, uh, Connor. You know, he wanted the lead and he's like, but, but he was talking to, uh, who's the director? Uh, James uh, Cameron. James Cameron. Yeah. He was talking to him and he says, look, I mean, this, this guy, I mean, the Terminator, he has to be like a robot. He has to be like a machine. I mean, he has to be able to load guns without looking at it because a machine wouldn't have to look at the gun. And we're talking about Yul Brenner's character. And he's like, Arnold, you should be the Terminator. Uh, and he's like, no, I mean, it's exciting. I wanted to be a better actor. And I knew, I looked at how many lines the ter this Terminator has, like, 60 lines. I had, like, 80 in Conan, so I don't <laughs> want to go down the lines. He says, no, look, Arnold. The film is called The Terminator. That's all. The, and then, you know, he got in this fight with, uh, with Cameron on the set. He's like, Arnold was saying, he went, the line said, I'll be back. He's like, no, a machine would not use contraction. And they would say, I will be back. 
He's like, no, well, look, that's the line. I'm saying. He's like, no, but I'm telling you my whole thing that you liked my, you know, like you were. He's like, just say the effing line. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he talks about how right he was when all these kids would come up to him, like at the screen, after this, the, the screen, he's like, say it, say it. I'll be back. <laughs> he's like, and if I had said, I will be back. No kid would have, you know, so can't, there you go. So you can't, but it is interesting though, because, <laughs> because it's the, like the assumed capacity now where Schwarzenegger's thinking the machines would be cold. Even the development now, now we're imagining that they could emote and we're thinking about how they design emotions. And in Westworld, these simulated like androids or whatever, they, they, they're delighting in variables and things like this in their behavior. Yeah, uh, the the actor playing the initial creator and of the whole technology and still is kind of the head guy is Anthony Hopkins, who I could you know he's just one of my favorite actors of all time. You know he can he's amazing. He really can. He can go from being Hannibal Lecter to C.S. Lewis to the Apostle Paul uh, without blinking an eye. But um, the, what has happened in this first episode is they're beginning to have some apparitions and. Uh, Anthony Hopkins has added to the program what he calls reveries. And uh, these are things that are uh, apparently what they've begun to do is create some abstractions and allow at least a couple of the characters to go back into their memory bank. Because how the whole thing works is they're in a dream world. Uh, they're a program that can't possibly hurt you know, uh, any living thing. Uh, and they're kind of... Uh, washed each day. I mean, it's kind of the, the whole, there are scripts that are written, but they act out, you know, the scripts within a certain pattern. Eternal recurrence. Yeah. And so the patterns are starting to be disrupted. And, and even the creators have talked about it, and some of the early reviews have said this really, uh, what's different about this uh, remake and reboots and dramatically different is it's really a reflection on what does it mean to be human? Yeah. And that's, what, again, I think that gets to like, like, we can imagine getting AI to the point where it, it has consciousness. And I mean, maybe whether or not we'll see that or not, but it's not, it doesn't seem now like a sci-fi concept. It seems like a sci, like maybe science could get us there. Right. And, and it, it makes you start to wonder like, what is the nature of consciousness? What, what, so again, I think that that you put that into play and then all of a sudden these, these kind of sci-fi dystopian technological horror stories become much more interesting because who knows how close we are from the next discovery that's going to be the thing that will make it possible. Yeah. And I also think what this is going to continue to explore is what is the nature of free will and what is the nature of determinism and, uh, and what is the human relationship to that? You know, one of the reoccurring themes, whether it be uh, philosophical, superstitious. Or was that a rhetorical question? Because I was going to ask him. Hey Siri, what's the nature of free will? Checking on that. Okay, I found this on the web for what's the nature of free will. Okay, Siri is clearly not scaring me. That she's going to take me over. Uh, all right, Siri, I'm not really worried at this point now. After Siri, I was not very simulative of consciousness. Uh, but just in case, when you go to sleep, you're going to turn that thing off at night. <laughs> you know what I did, though, today for the first time with the new iOS operating system, Siri is on my Mac. And I don't even use Siri that much, but I was working on a worship folder earlier in the morning. I just, you know, I was doing my coffee and I did just go, hey, Siri, open pages for me. <laughs> pages just popped uh, up. I was like, dude, I'm on the Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, what I was getting at that Siri tried to help us with 
is this idea of what is the nature of human freedom. Uh, and really through the history of thinking, like I said, whether we're talking religious thought, philosophical thought, and increasingly psychological and biological thought, exactly how free are we as humans? And, and how do you talk about free will? Uh, you know, the latest version of determinism is kind of biological, or, you know, both the biological determinism and, if you would, a psychodevelopmental kind of determinism. In other words, between our genetic makeup and how we're raised in our early years, um, one might even go as far as say as most of what we think is freedom might be an illusion. At least that's, that's some of their... Yeah, I, I, on the technical term for my views on these things is a lazy, unreflective compatibil- compatibilism. <laughs> Why don't you expound upon your laziness? Well, well, well you know, I, a buddy of mine was writing a, a paper. He's at Westchester, Master in Philosophy. He's writing a paper on consciousness and freedom and all this stuff. And you know, and are we is are things like do you need consciousness, you know, to to be free, and like do you need consciousness and freedom and what if you what what if you believe in God and does any kind of divine deterministic capacity make us free? And compatibilism is is the view that says it's not divine sovereignty or free will. It's it's because of divine sovereignty there is free will. So I told him I'm a lazy, unreflective compatibilist. <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough for me. I assume that generally that holds. Right. But then again, none of my existential intellectual problems are generally caused by this, which is why I can be lazy and reflective about it <laughs> most days. Well, and, and the psychological uh, version of that would be that, uh, you know, it's neither, you know, 100% nature or 100% nurture, that we are a complex interaction of both, you know, our makeup, genetically, IQ, and our experiences, and, and our reactions to those experiences. Yeah, that might be where real human freedom begins to you know, how to explore, and what are our reactions to our givens? What are our, to our givens? Yeah, uh, in other words, to our... Robin Givens, I thought, no, what was are... mistreated Mike Tyson a little bit with a lithium. I thought that's <laughs> Robin Givens was where he went, really, no. downhill. He no, might not have those tattoos on his face now. <laughs> no, in other words, all right, this is what my biology is. This is what my, you know, my IQ is determined... Uh, you know, it can, it can only be so high by my genetics. It depends on, you know, certain favorable things that happened when I was young. And if it's hitting triple digits, you might go down in the polls if you're running for press. <laughs> That's right, right now. <laughs> um, and the other thing is how, how I, I'm reared. I was reared in a certain way, uh, in a certain context, a certain time. So given all those influences, how much of, of my own actions, my own thinking, my own responses, are really self-determined. Yeah, and if you feel self-determined, I mean, on one level, that like that's the pragmatist kind of question. Like, if you feel, if you experience agency, do you, are you free? Like, you 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 have, I'm sure, feelings that I, I want to do X. You know, I I went and got a you know Coke Zero, or I went to the gym, or you know, and you you had a sense of there was a deliberative process, and then you did it right. And right. so, like, if you now, but then question is like, how much? Like, like, let's say. Uh, this is an example from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on positive and negative liberty. Like, let's say I see someone and they're driving down the road and there's a fork in the road and they go left. Then they come to an intersection, right, across, you know, and there's, they can, it's a four-way intersection and they can go either way and they choose to go right. You think, okay, that person was free 
to do that, right? That's an example of negative, what they call negative liberty, or, you know, there's no constraints there. But, but what if the person went left and then right at, at the crossroads uh, because they're addicted to cigarettes and they had to go to the cigarette shop, you know, to get, you know, they had to go to the convenience store whatever, to get cigarettes. And they know by going right instead of going straight, they're going to miss a train that's taking them to an appointment that's very important to them. And yet they feel it's more, it's less like they're driving and more like they're driven. Right. And that's sort of positive liberty. So like our, our libertarian friends would, would be concerned mostly about negative liberty that like this, that basically if you have, if you, if you have like the conditions for negative liberty, not being constrained, you're, you're free. But then what about, you know, the, the political question is what about this person who is really, are they really free? Because they're rationally, they know X is important, but they choose Y because their baser drives pull them in that direction. So these, I mean, and you could say right. this on a personal or societal level, like how much is, you know, it, it, even though you make sure like a crack addict is choosing and they are driven, not driving, they're driven to get cracked. They, they're, 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 they have agency, right? Like they, they, they I mean, they're aware of choices they're making. And yet how free are you if you can only make certain choices? Right, right. But that you really authentically experience as choices. Right, right. And you have to turn right if you're Zoolander because you cannot turn left. You're not ambidextrous. <laughs> yeah, you're not ambidextrous. No, uh, I guess the other thing from a- Are you kidding? Anybody you think of an idiot? <laughs> this is a school for ants. It would have to be three times the size. <laughs> right. Truly one of the m- most stupid movies. Amazing. That, uh, of all time. But, um, you know, the other thing, does there have to be a prior cause or a free will decision? Isn't that by nature- makes something free it doesn't have to have a prior uh now again but when you like the idea of addiction or the idea of you know we're conditioned in a certain way it, it that becomes a little more complicated it does and i i mean we could try siri again <laughs> given our first performance i don't think she's gonna i think we're wading into even deeper waters where god help us she can help us not she the divine i meant she siri can help us less and less yeah one of the other great inconsistencies of our time, which seems to be, there seems to be no problem for us living in the midst of remarkable philosophical and life inconsistencies. It seems to be the nature of what it means to be alive in America in 2016. But on one level, we have all these different reasons for why we do certain things, okay? And, and almost to the point where we're, you know, kind of, in, you know, understanding and enabling those people. We're making special concessions for all kinds of different uh, behaviors and things, okay? And at the other level, we really uh, are in a time where the autonomy of the individual is almost made absolute. So on one level, we have all this one narrative where, well, this is how I was raised. This is my chemistry. uh, This is my biology. um, And on the other hand, I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. And I am, I, I am, um, I, I am Lord of the conscience alone. You know? Well, it's interesting. Like Christian Smith, who's one of the, you know, the premier sociologists working today. Uh, he's also a Christian. He's at Notre Dame, but, but he's, I mean, he's one of the most respected sociologists working. And he wrote this book called What is a Person? And the premise for the book, it's a big, thick book, but the premise for the book is that said, look, you know, I'm not getting into religious convictions here. I, I just want to talk as a social scientist. Most of my colleagues in the social sciences have very, very strong political and ethical convictions on human rights, you know, on the dignity of the individual. 
that I think their work couldn't ground. Their view of a person couldn't ground their ethics or their politics. And so he says, you know, we need something like a concept of that's soul-like. And by that, he's like, I'm not talking metaphysics. He says, but we need something like an emergent reality, where like an emergence theory, you know, like a, like a building, right, is, is the product of, you know, chemistry, because you're making bricks and stuff, and math. But then the math, you know, it can't be reduced to the math, which builds the, architect- it's the architecture, the chemistry. All these things create, like you couldn't have a building without bricks, but you can't, a, it, bricks aren't just a building. And, and, and the higher complexities emerge from the more base complexities. They're inseparable, but different and distinct. And so he's like, you, you, you have to look at the biological, the socio-psychological, biological factors as creating something emergent that it wouldn't exist without those things, but it's distinct enough from them that there's like a subject, there's an I in the I and thou. There's not an it. Right. And so I think that that's the paradox. He's saying, you know, like when my colleagues are protesting against, you know, the Iraq war or against general mutilation, they believe in I's, you know, that could correspond to thou's. But when they're teaching undergrads, they're teaching, a lot of them are teaching undergrads that human beings are more like an it. <laughs> so right. Like no, I, I think that's a great observation. And, you know, if that's happening on, you know, the highest level of thinking. No wonder, you know, there's so much um, just in practical life that's just dramatically inconsistent. Although I don't think that's, that's new. I mean, in the second century, the two most popular gods, uh, you know, were fate and chance. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, and, and no wonder, I mean, I think this sometimes is underappreciated why Christianity was appealing, because if you're in the second century, you know, you're, you're screwed either way. You know, fate's going to yeah. get you and chance is yeah. going to get you. And I think sometimes there are Christianities that forget um, the bold statement of, you know, Christianity in the first couple centuries was that you are not, uh, you are not bound by your gender, by your class, uh, by your ethnicity, uh, that you are free in Christ. Um, and I, I, again, I, I think sometimes we don't appreciate what it meant to be a slave in the ancient world, or for that matter, you know, in the not too you know, distant past our own country. But maybe half the people at, some, at certain times in these congregations were slaves. And if you were a slave, your master could do anything and everything they wanted to to you. I mean, there were some kind of laws you weren't supposed to, you know, you to try to protect them from being beaten to death. But the truth of the matter is, and the same thing true, if you're whatever class you were in, anyone above you could kind of do whatever they wanted to you. If you're a woman, you know, you were either your, you know, your husband's wife or your father's daughter. I mean, there was some liberalization in the late first century in the Roman Empire for rich women. But nonetheless, um, Christianity kind of burst into the scene. And again, Paul, who often is the whipping post for all kinds of different uh, uh, pseudo-theologies and pseudo-ideologies, I mean, there's nothing more radical that I know of that was written in late antiquity uh, uh, that says, in Christ there is no male, no female, no Jew, no Gentile, no slave or free. There's no more radical egalitarian statement that I know of in, in the ancient world during that time. And, and so there was a kind of, you know, Christianity offered a kind of freedom. Um, and I, I think that that's an important message uh, in any century. It has different backdrops, but I think um, it's still one that we need to hold on to in, in the 21st. Yeah, I, th- I think that that is right. I mean, I think that freedom, well, it's interesting because I think that, that 
there's a sense in which what we want to do, I mean, this is the, the nature, I think, of the struggle is it's in Augustine's prayer, right? Lord, command what you will, but then give me the grace to will what you command. Yeah. Because if we don't have that, we still don't feel free. Like, I think even if you do there, it's really funny. There's this study of children, like about children and morality. And they basically found that uh, children, it, it, let's say they, they present scenarios to children and said, if you, uh, you know, here's Johnny and Johnny didn't, he wanted to go out and play with his friends, but his mom told him to pick up his toys and he kind of like went back and forth and then picked his toys up. But then here's uh, Jane and Jane, when she also wanted to go outside and play with her friends, and mom said to pick up the toys. She didn't deliberate. She didn't go back and forth and, you know, she just did it. Adults thought kind of more highly of, of Johnny because he felt ambiguous and did it. Kids all thought highly more highly of Jane because she didn't deliberate. <laughs> and, like, then, then, and then, like, what do you think? Like, kids are judgmental little jerks or what? <laughs> Some of it is like that. Wait, what are the. I think this was in the New York Times, Atlantic or something. But one of the, the speculations was like, do we have the complexity or the, the appreciation develop how complex the battle against the will is? You know, and straight, whereas kids seem to have a more naive understanding of morality. But but there is something true there that, like, we all, I mean, it's funny because every New Testament scholar will tell you that Romans 7, when Paul says, well, not everyone, but a lot of them, like, will tell you, well, it doesn't mean what everybody that reads it thinks it means when Paul says, look, I get up. This is the struggle. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's not about that. <laughs> I, I want to do, I want to do yeah. what, what I want to do. I actually think it is about that. But, like, you know, I bet, again. Well, it can be about that, but that's not what he intended. But New Testament, people go into New Testament studies to tell people. That text doesn't mean what you think. <laughs> like people go into like theology and philosophy to tell people this is what you need to think. People go into biblical studies and say that text doesn't mean what you think. But but it's the only and, text. And people become historians to tell you both you're wrong. Exactly right. Yeah, right. But it's like the only text in the New Testament that whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you say this is exactly my experience of life. What I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't do, I don't want to do, I do, and I find myself like in this, and then and yet like the promise of. The grace of Christ is in the midst of this. There is that that uh, that grace and God's healing presence actually have a liberative effect on the will and can right. give us. It can resolve some of the ambiguity, so that there's in these grace moments, you know, the obe- like the obedience is is the obedience in faith and really feels free. You know, it's it's interesting. I think Augustine was a real corrective. Uh, and I think he, you know, there are a lot of people just sort of anti-Augustine, but um, because they initially say, well, look, you know, Pelagius had this wonderful view that, you know, you're born innocent and humanity can achieve, you know, this great freedom. And, you know, it's not, there isn't some brooding deity condemning them to hell before they even get started. But the interesting thing is Pelagius' vision was a vision for only a few. Oh, yeah, I, I think, yeah. It's I totally mean, elite, yeah. It's a naivete, you know. Uh, yeah, well, we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, you know our uh, our friend Bart Campolo out in in, in California, the Humanist Chapel. I mean, Bart's anthropology is unbelievable. It's almost like somebody that's lived that much life, the in, the inability to to see like the tragic nature of the human condition, and how most people don't feel free. Very, I mean, most people feel bound to compulsive things and are incredibly recidivist and struggle like on uh, you know in some areas of of life just feel like there's there's demons that never sort of go away and i I think that that where this is where augustine yeah and and again i I would you know i I have problems with late augustine and uh and i have a lot of problems with 
some of Augustine's extreme Calvinist followers. But um, I call the belief in infinite damnation the good old days. <laughs> Even Bonaventure goes, eh. you know, there's a, in one of his works, he goes, ah, Augustine was, it's funny. He, he doesn't want to say Augustine's wrong, but in essence, he does. Um, but in one of uh, you know, the middle period of this whole debate uh, about free will that takes up a large segment of the Augustinian corpus, uh, a book called, I think, in a Spirit and Letter, Spirit and Letter, I think it was at this work. One of my favorite, this has kind of been my working definition. Now, he gets more extreme in the later stages, but he says, the problem is we are free to choose, but we're not free to attain. Right. And I think to me, that's, that's kind of a wonderful balance. In other words, that, um, that there's a sense where, and whether or not you want to, you know, he certainly wasn't thinking about anything about modern genetics or modern psychology, but I think you can take that view and it, it kind of works in, in our contemporary situation. This is, I just read today from a book that's, I love this book, just I love the title, but if I, I think Oliver Crisp. Deviant Calvinism, because that's I want to start identifying that. What, what, what is your religion? I'm a deviant Calvinist, just because I like the deviant <laughs> part. But he talks about he has a. It's a fabulous book, actually. But it, for people that like sort of, it's a very kind of uh, technical but readable book of theological essays. But he has a chapter called Libertarian Calvinism, and and he's not talking in the political sense, but he's talking about the nature of freedom and some a different some minority ways of thinking through Calvinist theology. And he uses a great example of Hal Jordan. He says Hal Jordan, who of course had become the Green Lantern, was free like to think about flying and creating objects with his mind projected into space in the realm of space and time. He was free to, but he wasn't free to attain it until the alien shipwrecks right. on and gives him the ring. And so like even even like the desire to yearn, right, isn't desire isn't the capacity to attain. So in the end, everything you need to know about everything is in comic books. Uh, I was going to say Augustine, but either way. By the way, I just had this image of what a deviant Calvinist is. Yeah. It's not somebody who really wants to hurt anybody, but instead of drowning Anabaptists, they throw water balloons at Neo-Anabaptists. I like that. Watch <laughs> out, Fitch. Here we come. <laughs> Freedom. This is what I call.
you wanna sleep and say what you wanna say. Let the children play while they wanna play and work when you wanna work. Like when you wanna play. Free. Just because you feel the space, that's the way you ain't no one. 